The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here to sing, to remember, to pray, and not to preach and listen to your word, to listen to you speak to us. This is a great privilege. You provide it for us. You provide it for us every week, in fact. You gather us here corporately to commune with us as a body, to fellowship with us, your family to teach us, to speak to us. And again, on this Easter, you do that, and we say thank you. So would you now, Lord, open this passage to us and teach and and do so to do more than just inform our minds, but do so so as to renew our hearts, to give refreshment, to give encouragement, to give hope to us, your people, and to call into yourself those who are not yet yours. Lord, may you do that this morning. May you build up your church, those who are in it and those who you mean to call, maybe who find themselves here unexpectedly this morning. Maybe they're here because you want to speak to them, and so I pray do so. Build up your church and bring honor to your name. Thank you, Lord, for this great opportunity to listen to your word, truth from the ages for us today. Thank you. So give clarity to my words, Lord. If there are barriers in our own hearts, if there are are physical distractions, if there are sinful barriers in our own hearts, would you clear those away now? Would you lead us in repentance even where we sit so that we would be wholly tuned to you and to your spirit? Send him through the room in power to teach. Build your church and honor your name, we pray. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. On this Easter Sunday, we take a break from our usual ongoing study of the Gospel of Luke to celebrate Jesus' resurrection as we've been singing about and praying about. Obviously, it's Easter Sunday. But we're going to do this, we're going to celebrate the resurrection by looking at a passage that actually does not mention it at all, specifically. It's not mentioned, but it's there, kind of behind the passage, assumed all throughout. And really what's happening is the passage is going to draw out for us at least one of and some of the ramifications of this event, the resurrection. The event, the details of the resurrection are critical. It's it's all important. This is not just a a religious, a spiritual idea where Christians gather to, to talk about hope. This is an actual event that happened in history. The, the details of it are critical. If it didn't happen, this is all pointless. But it happened historically. Throughout the early church, the historical fact of the resurrection was universally known as just that, historical fact, witnessed by hundreds of people, all of whom did not expect it 
and really had a hard time getting their minds around what they were seeing with their eyes and touching with their hands. They saw with their eyes and touched with their hands the once completely dead and buried Jesus, now alive again before their eyes. Three days later, a week later, a month later, six weeks later, he was dead and buried, hung on a cross, stabbed through the side, dead. And for six weeks, we hang out with him, we talk with him, and we eat with him. Alive. They had a hard time getting their minds around that. It, it was totally confusing, but obviously, clearly true. A historical event. They knew it as such, and really, they, they assumed it and carried it on through all of life. And what we're looking at this morning is not going to be a rehearsal of those facts or a rehearsal of the story, but we're going to look at a passage that kind of answers the question of how did they then treat that fact? What, what effect did it have on the living out of their lives for them and, and then therefore for us today as Christians in this day? What did, or today, what does a church or a Christian do with Jesus' resurrection? How do we take that proven truth and use it in the daily living of life. That's what we're going to be looking at, and we're going to find that in 1 Thessalonians 5, a few verses from chapter 5 of the book of 1 Thessalonians, which, in fact, was a letter, originally a letter written to a church in the town of Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. The people in that church had become Christians sometime before this when Paul, the Apostle Paul, who had himself met the resurrected Jesus while persecuting him. That converted Paul. And Paul then traveled and preached all over the Mediterranean world, including this place, Thessalonica. And people had come to faith there, and they'd remained close to Paul over time. And he was now writing to them to answer some questions that they had. Particularly, by the end of this and moving into chapter 4, they had some questions about some folks who had become Christians and then had died. Evidently, they expected Jesus to return very quickly, and they'd never actually thought through what happens when people who become Christians die before Jesus comes back. Well, they miss that event. What happens? They wondered. So Paul's answering that question, reassuring them at the end of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he transitions to talk about everybody else, those who are still alive when Jesus returns, when the day of the Lord occurs. And that day is coming, the day of the Lord, the day when Christ comes back to earth just as he left, physically, bodily ascended into heaven. He will physically, bodily return to this earth to judge everybody. He will gather together his people and will judge all of the earth, every man, woman, and child from every tongue, tribe, and race who have followed every religion or no religion at all. There is one judge of humankind, Jesus. He will come and judge everybody. We are moving towards that day. This human existence is not a cycle. It's, it's not an endless circle of happenings. It's progressing towards an end. And everything that we know now will be changed when Christ comes to judge. 
chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, are discussing that. Paul discusses this reality, and he uses a number of different pictures and metaphors, kind of mixing them as he goes back and forth, but he's always dividing the world into two groups, Christians and non-Christians. That's the great division in the world. Those who trust Christ alone and those who don't. He's always dividing the world into these two groups. Sometimes he calls it light and darkness, people of the day, people of the night. And as he divides these two groups, it's clear that one is unprepared for what's coming. People who live of the night. People who live unaware that a thief is coming. Or that birth pangs are coming. He uses those two pictures to, to kind of capture this moment when you realize it's too late to get ready. When the thief's already there, when the birth pangs are already biting, it's too late to start getting ready for that. It's come. And he's making the point in the first verses of this chapter that that, that moment is coming when it's too late to get ready for it. So there's, there's a warning that stands there to, to all of us, to wherever you are this morning, there's, there's a warning, a reality there that should alert you that there is a time coming. Are you ready for it? Some sobriety there called for. But that being said, that's not his main purpose in writing this passage, and that's not going to be our main purpose this morning. Well, we need to touch on that. It's, it's real. It's true. It's here. But Paul's attention, he's writing to a church. He's writing to Christians. And his tone is not one of heaviness. It's one designed to produce in Christians, in the church, encouragement and hope. To call them on, to, to build them up, to, to cause them to run in hope. So with that context framed now, let me read a couple of verses, verses 8 through 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'm going to draw three observations from these verses that will, will help us think about the impact of the resurrection on our everyday life. If I, if I put that all in one sentence, here's where I'm going this morning. Here is a great hope. God has saved us to live a new life with Jesus forever. That's where we're going this morning. That's what he's trying to say to the church. Here is a great hope. God has saved us to live a new life with Jesus forever. I'm going to work towards that this morning. Let me read verses 8 through 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, and build one another up, just as you were doing. Short passage, I'm going to draw three observations. And if you're watching the clock, the third one is quite short, so don't worry. 
Here's the first one, though. Having been illumined in salvation, we should live wisely now in light of the end. Having been illumined in salvation, we should live wisely now in light of the end. In verse 8, where I began reading, Paul continues on with the train of thought from the first several verses, and he's continuing to mix the metaphors here. He's He's saying, since we, talking about Christians, since we belong to the day, and if we'd read before, you'd re- recognize all those, those metaphors there about night and darkness that he uses literally to describe the time when, when thieves come sneaking around and when parties happen. He, he means literally, and, then, and literally, in the darkness, you don't see things very well. Things are cloaked. Things happen that you're unaware of. He said literally, and then he uses it metaphorically to talk about the darkness, people who live separated from God, metaphorically in the dark, in the evil. So he's going, he's using this in a couple different ways, and then when he switches over to talk about Christians, in verse 8, we belong to the day. We, we Christians, we live in a place where we are illumined, where we see, not like in the dark. We're with God in the light, And we understand we have been illumined. And therefore, we should live like it. There is a good, wise way of life that's befitting people who live in the day, people who have been illumined and who get this place. That's what the illumining of of the day means, that, that we who live in the day, we understand something. If we understand what's going on here, we understand where this is all headed. And there's a life that should appropriately be, be matched to that kind of understanding. A life of sobriety. It says, let us be sober. But he doesn't mean sober in the sense of, of alcohol sober. He means sober-minded. <laughs> Sober-minded, wise, careful. We should live with circumspection and alert to deception and to temptation and alert to attack. Christians are to take care because we are Christians and because we understand differently. We understand more. We understand the great big picture We should live in a way that wisely matches that, knowing that one day at the end we will all stand before God and give an account, Christians included. Give an account to him for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. That's what Paul says to Christians in the book of 2 Corinthians. They, Christians here, we, Christians today, we are not to live like those in the night who don't understand these things. We don't see them. We should live knowing there's a day coming. I want to live wisely now in light of that. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Okay? So what does he mean? What kind of life does he have in view here? Well, keep reading. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Continues on in the passage there. And obviously talking about a helmet, talking about a breastplate, he's using the language of, of military armor. Something that is defensive. It's both, something here is supposed to protect us in some way, be, be a shelter to us. 
How so? We'll keep looking at the wording. Let us be sober, having put on, there's a relationship there. Keep thinking about this. Be sober, having put on, what's the connection there between what we are to do and what we have done? The connection is kind of like this. Let me switch to a different picture. If I were to say, let us play basketball, I love basketball. Hope everybody's following the tournament. Basketball's on my mind. And if I were to say, let us play basketball, having developed good dribbling skills and a solid jump shot. What's the connection? What we're supposed to do is play basketball. That's, that's the goal. Play basketball. Play ball. Having this is what we, we have already done. We have developed something. We have something prior to this point. Don't know when, but prior to now, we have developed certain skills. We, we have them in our pocket. And that's how we can play basketball, and that's what we're supposed to do to play basketball. Play basketball, having developed dribbling and shooting. You have something, so you can. You have something, Use it in order to. That's the relationship. Christian lives soberly, having put on the breastplate, having put on this helmet. Faith, love, and hope. We have certain things. Put them on sometime in the past. We have them in our pocket. This is how we can This is what we are to use in order to live soberly. Faith, love, and hope. One of Paul's favorite little trilogies. He uses those words, in fact, several times in this letter. As a summary of all that Paul would call us to live out. Now we can look through the book and we can find a bunch of different commandments and exhortations, but that's a pretty good summary of what he calls a Christian to be. And if we look at chapter 1, verse 3, we see it there in a little bit more detail, and you can see why it's such a good summary. Glance back at chapter 1, verse 3. He elaborates a little bit on those words. The work of faith, the labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They have this already, Even back in chapter 1, Paul's recalling how they have this, how they have lived it out. They've already put it on, even back in chapter 1. They have work that comes from faith. The Christian life is not opposed to work. Christian life is very much about good works. The Bible's full of commandments to us, full of full of things we are supposed to do, full of calls to obedience and holiness. everywhere. The Christian life is not opposed to to works, good works, works of faith, works that come from faith. Faith works. Trusting works. Works that we do, Christians do, 
not in order to be saved, but because we already are saved, because we already are a people of faith, with faith then driving works, we are to be very active and very working from faith. Work of faith. Faith that says in a Christian's mind, I know some things. In fact, I have heard from God himself promises, truths extended out to me, and I see them, and I hear them, and I trust, I have faith, I believe them. And therefore, standing on those truths, I act, I work from this faith. That's, That's the Christian life. Works of faith. In particular, what's the greatest work of faith? Well, we've seen this a bunch of times in the Gospel of Luke. The thing that counts most, says Paul elsewhere, faith working itself in love. The labor of love. A love that says, this is difficult, it involves work, but it is a love of other. It's, it's a love of not me, but a love of other out there, everywhere, all others, particularly others in the body of Christ. A faith and a love that is driven by, that's rooted in a hope that is steadfast. Hope in Christ for the salvation that is mine that is coming. These, these all, it's, it's really difficult to separate any of the three of these and, and have them stand by themselves. You can't have faith, there's no coming salvation. You, you can't love without faith. They, they're all stuck together here. They're all adorning the Christian. They're, they're all together armor. That being said, the one that's around the head, the one that's on the helmet, the top one that protects the head. Hope of the coming salvation. We know there's a future, a day, when there will be a judgment. And the Christian, as the Christian stands in hope, that at that day, there's, there's going to be a deliverance of me. There's a coming salvation to me. So when that, when that day comes, I will not fail. I will not fall. I will not be condemned. This is the greatest promise that invites the, the deepest hope in a Christian is going to fuel the, the strongest action here in this world to give your life away, certain that you will not lose it, but in fact it will be all kept and gathered together and saved by Jesus at the end. Faith, love, and hope in a coming salvation. This all, and of course we could elaborate on you know, what specifically kind of works and what exactly does the love look like and, and in what situations do you hope. Those are other sermons. This all together, he describes it as armor that protects us. Well, how does it protect us? We, we walk through life constantly offered other promises. 
constantly invited to love ourselves, constantly told that hope is found in X and Y and Z. The Christian that that says, I will set my mind on, the Christian that is fortified with, protected all around, with a hope in the coming salvation, not a hope in circumstances working out here in this world, and believes and trusts the promises of God, not the promises of the world, and then lays down his or her life in love of other rather than love of self, is protected from the temptations and the lures and the attacks of the world. It is an armor against what's out there for you. And it is wise living in light of the end, because when you stand before God at the end and give an account for your life and say, look at the faith trusting your promises, O Lord, and the love of others in your name, O Lord, and the hope in your salvation of me, O Lord. What will you hear from him? Well done, good and faithful servant. Faith, love, and hope. This is the active Christian life. The Christian life now. The Christian life that is fitting for us now is a life of worked-out faith of other-centered love, and of hope in Christ. You've been illumined in salvation, so live wisely now in light of the end. And if, if I were just to leave it right there, that's all true. And, and of course, as I said, there are other sermons that could be preached about, well, what kind of works of faith and which promises would one trust and what does the love look like? There are other things that we could go down. But that right there is true. There is a life that is fitting for a Christian to live right now that is wise, that would involve us taking care to live appropriately in light of what's coming that we know about. But if I, if I leave it there, I suspect, it, it certainly hits me, and I suspect it, it would, it would kind of land on most of us here as, yeah, yeah, okay, yes, sure. I mean, what's to disagree with there? If you're a Christian, nothing. And I want to very carefully say, and that's right and good, and I don't want to throw that out, but we have to say something else on top of it. Because the, yeah, I, it probably hasn't grabbed your heart yet. Because that sort of truth isn't actually heart-grabbing. It, it's not designed to be. It's designed to tell us what we should be about. And Paul knows he has to back it up with the next verse. So the next verse is what, then the second point I'm moving towards here. If you, if you will think about the next verse, it, I mean, for some of us here, it may shock you and it may unsettle you, but it should then lead you through that to marveling at the great grace of God for you. 
Paul backs up. Paul thinks that you need to hear verse 8 and then immediately need to hear verse 9. That's why he, under the inspiration of God and the Holy Spirit, wrote verse 8 and then wrote verse 9. Because you need to hear verse 9 after verse 8. So hear this, and may it woo you. May it draw your heart on. May God open your eyes to see something amazing about the goodness and the grace of God to you, Christian. Here's the second observation. We have been saved and can live soberly, all that first point, completely because of what God has done. Completely because of what God has done. We look closely at verse 8, what we are just talking about. It's an exhortation, but not quite a command. There isn't exactly a command in verse 8. He's talking about what we are already and what we should do, what would be reasonable for us to do. Since we are this, come on, let's live it. There's no command to become something different. He's just exhorting. He's just encouraging us. Here's the way we should go. But if you were to ask, well, why should we do that? Verse 9 answers the why question. Why are we like this? Why are we of the day? And why should we live soberly in a way that's, that's fitting and wise? Why? Because for because of what God has done in Christ for us. Not because of what we did, but completely because of what he did in eternity past and then acted out in time for us. Verse 9. Why are we like this? For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Let that, let that sit on you. To slow down and understand that. Verse 8 simply says, since you are saved and aware, since you belong to the day, why? Verse 9, because God destined you for it. He didn't destine you. There, there are throughout this whole passage, there are these two paths. There's the path of light and dark, the path of being aware and the path of not being aware, the path of wrath and the path of life. There are two paths. And God did not destine you for one, but he destined you for the other. That's why you're on it. Because of the decision of God for you. You need to stop right there and notice if your mind just went to theological disputation. There is a good, fine place for that, and, I, and I, I'm quite comfortable entering into that discussion. But you just missed the point. Because God destined you not for wrath do you get wrath you would get wrath except that God decided not to give it to you 
Set aside, there is a good and fine place for it, but set it aside for a moment and get the point. He destined you not for wrath, but he destined you to obtain salvation. That thing that you're hoping in, you're, you, the only reason you can hope in it is because God decided to give it to you. He decided to bless you in remarkable ways. And all, all we heard in verse 8 was, this is how you should live. And then accidentally, all we hear in verse 9 is theological disputation. It's glory. It's glory. It's glory. It's glory. It is gift. It is eternity changing mercy to you. It's because God destined you not to be on the path that leads to wrath, but to put you on this path in eternity past. He decided this. Jot down 2 Timothy 1.9. Because God, of His own purpose and grace, which He gave to us the grace which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When did he give you grace in Christ? Before the ages began. He destined you for this. He made you an object of grace in eternity past, before there was time. This should floor you, and it puts all calls to live in a certain way in perspective. He's just calling you, since you are this, because I graciously made you so, and since I then call you to this, graciously so, live it out. It's all backed up with tremendous, marvelous, amazing grace. This is a precious truth that God himself decided to save you from wrath. To use a biblical word again, which occurs some 30 times in the New Testament in one form or another, what we're seeing here again is the doctrine of election. Of God choosing. Of God determining. Particular individuals that he destines for salvation, putting them on this path that leads to salvation in Christ. It occurs everywhere in the New Testament. It occurs in this book. Again, look back at chapter 1. Earlier I asked you to look at chapter 1, verse 3. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. The very next verse. Notice chapter 1, verse 3 is faith, hope, and love, followed by election. Our passage, faith, hope, and love, followed by election. Paul thinks this is important to put these two things together. For we know, brothers, I'm reading from chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Stop there. Paul knows that they have been destined, but he only knows it by reasoning backwards because he can't know what God did in eternity past. He can just see what God's done today. I preach the gospel to you. You heard, you believed, it gripped you, it changed your life, and therefore I can reason backwards and know why that was. God destined you in the past, and I can tell because now you are of the day. 
This is what God has done for you, Christian. Destined you to be saved through Christ. Continuing on in our passage. He destined you for salvation in Christ. Verse 10, who died for us. Who was sent to die. God destined you to obtain salvation and God sent Christ then to earth to die for you. Before the ages began, God started to chase you. And He secured you by sending Christ to die for you. To send Him to Good Friday's cross so that He would pronounce over Him, forsaken. If you're here in Good Friday, we looked at the words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was sent to be forsaken for you, whom He destined to be saved. Sent to be forsaken so that He would not forsake you because He is determined to save you. God sent His Son to the cross on purpose, deliberately to take your sin. Christ died for us. To save us. To take onto Himself the wrath of God. So that you would not be destined to it. This is a marvelous truth. Christian, it's true of you. I need to pause right here then and say, while we Christians are familiar with this, I have to ask generally, are you all, are you personally familiar with this? Has Christ died for your sins? You might be wondering that. Because you might be, I don't know, but you might be sitting there thinking, okay, I hear this guy talking about Christians, about this election, this destining, this choosing, this us, this people today, this people in this one path. I'm not a Christian right now. He's not talking about me. He's talking about this group, and I'm over here. Can Christ's death, can Christ's sin be for me? I'm not in the right group. If that's something like that, what you're thinking, then, then hear this, please. Can you apply Christ's death to you for your sin? You need it. Do you remember there is a day coming, a day of judgment coming? Christ will return and will judge everyone of every religion, of every, of every gender and age and ethnicity and race. He will judge everybody. And everybody will be found to have broken God's law and be worthy of condemnation, wrath. You need His payment. Can it be applied to you? You need to realize a couple things what we were just looking at. God destined us not to obtain wrath, but to obtain salvation. 
Another way I might put that. God determines who God will save. We need to be clear about that. I need to say that. You need to hear that. He wants everyone to know that so that we know for certain that we need to be saved. There is a rescuing that is necessary. We all need to know we must be saved. We need to hear that. God determines whom He will save so that we know there's a saving that needs to happen and so we know that God is God. God is God. We human beings, it is, it is very hard to get this point because we, we live, we, we function, we work in a world here in which all we see is flesh and blood, but we all sit beneath the Holy One who is God Almighty. And we do not say to Him, today I will be saved. Today I will take Christ's death and apply it to me. Do you see the posture in that? We don't tell God what His saving work does in this world. He's God. We don't tell God who gets into heaven. He's God. We don't tell God anything. He's in charge. But once we're clear on that, once we're clear on that, humbled before Him and in need of what we ourselves cannot make happen, not by our own efforts, not by our own attempts at good works, not by our own determining when and how I will be made right, we need it and we cannot make it happen. Once we're clear on that, if you're clear on that, then we humbly ask Him, please, God, please have mercy on me, a sinner. God, please save me. Please take this death of Christ your Son and please apply that to me. I am in great need. I cannot make it so. I cannot obligate. I can't fix it in any other way. I am totally in need. And you are capable. Please save me. We ask humbly. And the good news is that God promises that all who come to Him like that weary and heavy laden, meek and humble and broken in their sin. All who come to Him like that, all such ones 
will find in Him mercy. A great, amazing, gracious mercy. Let me pass back through that one more time in a briefer way because I know that it's heavy. But the reason I go into that is that we don't get saved lightly. The truth is that we are people beneath God and that God is God. And we need to be very clear on, on our utter, total, complete dependence on God. We need to be very clear that words like destined mean something. They're in the Bible. And then we also, you maybe today, also need to be very clear on the fact that all people, you included every single person who comes to him with nothing in their hands, simply asking humbly broken Every single one of those such people he will mercifully save. And so you are all invited, come. But no, you have to come humble and broken, asking. He's God. He is holy. He's God. He is gracious and merciful. He invites you to come and promises, I save all who come humbly asking. He died for us. But that's not where Paul's line of reasoning ends. Remember, and it might be hard to remember at this point, this whole long verse is answering this question about why, from verse 8. This long sentence of 9 and 10 is answering this question, why are we in this day? Why are we Christians? And why should we live like this? Well, he doesn't stop with just Christ died for us. He continues, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, he's revisiting the language from earlier when he was talking about the Christians who had died, fallen asleep, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And now finally we're at Easter. How can we live with one who died? Because he didn't say dead. See the assumption there. He's alive again. He died and was raised back to life so that we, Christians, whether we have fallen asleep, whether we physically died or not, we can live with him always. Spiritually living with him. And if you think about this right here, you realize, oh, that's the whole assumption behind verse 8. I've been placed in the day and I'm to live this out. I'm, I'm to live this life of faith, love, and hope because I'm living with Jesus, alive again with 
him. I have been crucified with Christ, and the life I now live, I no longer live in myself, to myself, for myself, but I live with him and for him who was raised for me, who brought new life to you. We pass through the death and we come out the other side alive again with Jesus living a new life. He has made you different and new. If you're a Christian, something has happened. He's made you a new creation in Christ. You're not just an old creation forgiven of your sin. That would be good. But that's not all that he destined you for. He destined you not just to be forgiven. He destined you for this whole, this full salvation that is a removing of your sin and a birthing again of you just like a resurrection from the dead. A new life born in you that then you live out. You are changed. Like Jesus was changed when he came out of the grave, You are alive with him, with his spirit living in you now as a different creation. You have a mind that is renewed and changed, that you understand the world differently. You have different values because the spirit of God has placed different goals, different perspectives in you. You have a different future and you know it. Therefore, you have different grievances, things hurt you now that didn't used to hurt you before and things uh, draw your affections on that didn't used to draw your affections on before. You are different. This is who you are by the work of God for you in Christ from eternity past carried forward and enacted now as he saved you and brought you to new life. The old life isn't you. Don't live it. All of all what I'm saying here in this second point is that when God looked down through eternity at you, what he saw was a new creation. He determined to make you different. And so he sent Christ to pay for your sin, to join you to him, to take you into the grave, and to bring you out new. The work of God in Christ for you. That's what's behind the call. So live wisely. Live with all of that constantly in the forefront of your mind remembering, seeing what God has done for you in Christ and recognizing that it will be very easy to forget that, the third point. The Christian's wise living is a community endeavor. Verse 11, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. In this context, what does he mean? Talk about this stuff always. He does not mean for us to take verse 11 and pull it out of that context and then use it for some sort of kind of generic encouragement, which is good and helpful. 
just not what he means here. He means encourage one another with these truths that God in eternity past has reached down to grab you when you were utterly in need to grab you and to save you and to raise you to a new life and make you different and new. Remind one another of that. Encourage one another with that. That's what builds up the body as we see what God has done for you, what God has done for me, what God is then calling me to be. We need to have that on our lips with each other always as an encouragement to one another, as a building up of one another. We forget such things. We leak. And so we need to be reminded of them. We are of the day, so let us live like it. In faith and in love, with a steadfast hope in the salvation that is coming. I need you to remind me of that. You need me to remind you of that. It strengthens us here in the world and prepares us for the day that's coming. And it has been made possible because of this weekend. Christ died for us and was raised, and so we live with him. Let me pray. Father, will you address individual, particular hearts and minds and individual, particular concerns? Will you address particular people or couples or families? Where they despair, will you give them hope? Where they wonder or confuse, will you give them clarity? Will you work in each of us here a a careful, sober-minded, and at the same time encouraged and built up, a careful and encouraged evaluation of your work for us? Cause us to see that and to think about it and to remember it. You are a deep God. You have done marvelous things. In eternity past, you thought of us. You acted in time to save. And you empower us to be new each day. Thank you for that. Make these things real Make them to be full of hope for us. And I pray, Lord, would you build up your church? Strengthen us and call in others. Call them in, Lord. We are in your hand and we are dependent on you. 
save and sanctify, please. For your good, for your glory, for your great name. For the well-being of us, your people, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.